Rondo's Universe. It's your host here, Ron Rapitalo. Real, real pleasure to have my buddy, Rudy Valdez, filmmaker extraordinaire, documentarian extraordinaire. Rudy, like all of my guest stories, always had some twists and turns and some incredible stories centered around people who saw their genius before they saw it more deeply within themselves. Uh, it was a real treat hearing Rudy's story and why he observes and sees the world the way that he does and why he's able to curate people's stories through the lens of documentaries. Thank you, Rudy, for sharing your genius today. And in the spirit of storytelling, we ghostwrite, edit, and publish first-time authors through leveragepublishinggroup.com. Check us out so we can amplify your voice to the world. Peace. Rondering's Universe. Another treat in store for all of you. I was able to tap into my Wayback Machine. It's been a minute since we've chatted, but I've been following this career for a minute. And we met on the beaches of Long Island through our friend Carrie Swanson in the early 2000s when a whole crew of us used to just hang out at the beach every summer, every week, right? My buddy, Rudy Valdez, who is an incredible Emmy award-winning documentarian and doing just some amazing work right now in documentary. So welcome, Rudy, to the Rondering's podcast. How are you doing, brother? Uh, I'm doing well. It's it's uh, great to talk to you. It's great to uh, great to see you. They don't yeah. see this on the podcast, but it's good to see your face. And uh, it's been a while. Yeah, it has been a while, friend. Um, we'll have to see if in the busyness of all our crazy schedules, we can Voltron our families back together. <laughs> but I know that might be a challenge considering how busy everyone's schedules are. But I'll put that out in the universe and hopefully we can maybe make that happen sometime 2024. Yeah, that would be amazing. That would be amazing. Yeah. Awesome, Rudy. So why don't we start out with what is Rudy's story? That is a very good question. A very uh, loaded question <laughs> for me in a lot of ways. Right. Because, <laughs> right. Because I, you know, I'll, I'll tell you a quick little anecdote. You know, one of the, I was very fortunate that film that I made a few years ago did really well. My first film uh, came out and did really well. And I was sort of touring around all over the place, doing screenings, doing all these things. I was at a big event, giant historic theater, completely sold out, almost entirely mm. of people who look a lot like me. And somebody went out there to introduce me and meaning no harm, wanting it, you know, really a person who's on my side and, and didn't mean anything ill. And there was no ill will, but they said, I'm going to introduce Rudy Valdez. And she sort of said my my resume and he talked about the film a little bit and then said a person who came from nothing and is now here in front of you doing this. And I mm. walked out there and part of me was like, do I address this? Do I not address this? But I went out there and I said, thank you for that introduction. I just want to clarify one thing. I said, I didn't come from money. I didn't come from generational wealth. I didn't come from mm. a lot of the things that maybe people hold dear but I come from, or, 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 or I should say, put value in. I said, but I come from love. I come from passion. I come from art. Amen. I come from culture. I said, I come from everything. And I, and I said, and, and that isn't to, to say that you meant any harm, but I'm looking out at an audience of people who look a lot like me and probably come from uh, similar circumstances that, that I did. And I didn't want them to look back at themselves and say, I'm nothing yeah. or where I am is yeah. nothing because then we start to instantly devalue all of these wonderful things that are around us. And so yes. my, my story is complicated in that sense because, you know, I could sit there and, and say, yeah, I, I had these things happen to me and I had these circumstances and, you know, yes, I, I was homeless for part of my, like all of those things happened. But I'm always very cautious about leading with that because it doesn't define me and it doesn't define it. I never wanted it to define where I'm going. I realize that it's important to put it out there and, and let people understand that you can overcome these things. But in the same respect, I'm also very tired of our stories, people of color stories, always having to have that asterisk of they're great in spite of, they're, they're great 
because they come from that. Like we can just be great. Sometimes our stories can just be great. Mm. We can just be talented. We can just be writers. We can just be producers. We can just, we don't have to have this woe is me story that places us in a place that we, we feel like we've overcome something like that. You don't see that happening with so many other people's stories and, and they don't have to come from quote unquote, nothing to be something. Like I was born something and maybe it wasn't that to the outside world, but I always had this idea that I'm going to go off and I'm going to see the world and I'm going to do things. And people tried Mm. to put barriers in front of me. Yes. And I was, you know, trying to jump those. I was trying to walk around those. I was trying to figure out what my version of that meant because from a very early age, they start to label you. They start to put you on a track. They start to put you in a, in a system that, that devalues all the things that are truly valuable. People will say, like, what is it that, that made you different? What is it that made you have the ability to do these things? And it's like, I guess just realizing that these lessons, these things that I went through aren't my crutch, aren't the thing that is going to say, well, I could have done this, but, or I could have done this, but. It was like, no, I'm going to do this because of, I'm going to do this because of these experiences. And, you know, I, I learned very early on, you know, I didn't know I was going to be a filmmaker until I was in my, you know, late twenties, but I knew I was going to be yeah. a storyteller. I knew that I wanted mm. to, to have a voice out there. And from a very early age though, I remember watching movies like Stand By Me and watching yes. shows like The uh, Wonder Years and loving those shows, but mm. also at the same time thinking, where am I? Where am I in this picture? I don't see anyone who looks like me. Did we not exist then? What is my version of that? And I wanted to take a look at all of these things that everyone looked at as these classic Americana stories that didn't have me or anyone who looked like me in them and said, what is my Americana? What is my version of growing up? And how can I put that out into the world? So I come from Lansing, Michigan, born and raised in the Midwest and wanted nothing more than to be happy and and honor where I come from and be proud of where I come from. But I also wanted to see what else was out there. Mm. Rudy, you say so many powerful things in your description, your story, right? And it's something that like, if I I go back to that period of time, right? Early 2000s, we're having fun on the beach, playing volleyball, kicking around. I I still remember, I think you're wearing Muay Thai shorts. I don't know why I remember. It was funny because because I was still sort of training a bit at the time. I was still doing a little bit yeah. of, uh, of uh, jujitsu and things like that. And I remember, yeah, it was the first time I met Chris Simamora, and we and yes. like looked at each other. And I think we both kind of knew. So, I don't even know if we said anything <laughs> to each other. We just kind of attacked each other. And next thing you know, like Kara's yeah. like, "What is going on?" And we're just like wrestling on the ground. But it was all love. Like it was. Clearly- oh my god! Y'all wrestling on the beach. I was like, "Yeah." Oh, there. That's the love language. Yeah, it was literally. <laughs> we were like dogs yeah. sniffing each other's butts. We were like, "Let's, let's, let's, like, let's." And uh, and I loved him from that moment on. But it was like, yeah, it was such yeah. a crazy, crazy time. Yeah. It's funny you uh, speak his name. He was also a uh, guest on this podcast, and yeah. he started a a blog and starting a podcast himself called The Practice of Fatherhood, which I'll send you that link. It is, I mean, it's really interesting. If I think at least of the three of us, like we are all storytellers. I, I When you said that, I've started thinking about where I am in my career and yeah, I've done search. I'm a coach. I'm like, wait a second. I've become a storyteller, Rudy, yeah. in a different way from what you do, but like we're, we've but all we're been all storytellers. Like we're, yeah. 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 That fascinates me so much. So when you go back, I, I think there's something that you said I want to hook onto, right? Because I've heard you talk about this in, in recent interviews, right? This idea that the way we've grown up are not deficits. In fact, I would argue really strongly, they've become incredible assets. They're the milieu, they're the foundation by which we're able to have if I'm quoting someone else, James Clear, in a particular post that I've seen over the years, entrepreneur's mindset and artist's soul. So yep. what was it from the way that you grew up you want to elevate in terms of the values you learned that have allowed you to be the Rudy Valdez today? Yeah, you know, it's interesting because I don't know that I always had that necessarily that mentality of I'm going to go off and conquer the world. I think that 
I had great people in my life who, you know, when you, when you're bowling and you have those bumpers up, like I had some great people in my life that allowed me to sort of bump away from, Ah. from the gutter every now and then and give me that reminder. And I credit, you know, my, my parents, obviously my older brother uh, was definitely one of those people who, you know, he was the first person I used to like train with and fight with. He's much older than I am. And he used to do this thing. And I haven't told <laughs> many people about this, but he used to, I don't want to say beat me up because that gives the wrong uh, <laughs> version of what this is. But, be, he, you know, clear. <laughs> yeah, yeah. To be clear, he wasn't like giving me beatings, but he was, you know, we would train and he would give me a little punch and he'd be like, you know, you're brown. And he'd punch me like that's strike one. He was like, he'd punch me again. He's like, you're poor. That's strike two. And he would say, never, ever give them an opportunity to give you a strike three. He was like, you already have two strikes. And so uh, there was always this thing in the back of my mind that, you know, I was never, I wouldn't say I was an angel. I wasn't a bad kid. I was just sort of a precocious, like wanted to get into all these things and do all these different things. Uh, But I was never disrespectful and I was never bad. And I think that that saved me, like him reminding me all the time, like, you know, do what you want to do, but don't be a shithead. Don't be disrespectful. Don't give them a chance Mm. to fail you. Don't give them. And so that was one of the things. And then, you know, I think I never want to discredit the hard work and the, the dedication to, to the things that I've been able to accomplish so far. But I also never want to discredit this idea of just pure luck sometimes. You know, mm, there have just yes. been moments of absolute luck that, you know, and people always say, yeah, but you were prepared for that, those moments. Like, yeah, but like, you know, there are just things that have happened and, and obviously a ton happened before this, but I'll never forget my uh, junior year in high school. I had terrible grades. Like I was not on track to graduate, not only with my class, but like at all, like I wasn't. I was not doing very well. And so I go and I have a meeting with my guidance counselor. And even even with having like a 1.3 GPA, I was like, should I be taking the SATs and ACT? Because I saw other people who I knew were doing that and they were starting to think about college and all these things. And I'll never forget my counselor saying, eh, you don't have to worry about those. You're not really college material. And, you know, it was all the way up until that point I'd been told from a very young age, you're not very smart. Like you should do this and maybe do that because you're just not very. And so I always had this idea that I wasn't very smart. You know, that's what people thought of me. I kind of always thought like, I don't think I'm dumb, but other people seem to think I'm not very smart. So I had that in the back of my mind. And then, so I'm talking to him about what I can do to graduate because I was like, I have to graduate. I have to figure something out. I can't, I, I need to do and he goes, well, you're going to have to go to summer school after this year and after, you know, your senior year. And maybe you can graduate with your class if you promise to do the summer school and they'll retroact and blah, blah, blah. And I was like, great, I'll do that. He said, and, you know, you're going to have to take all of these other like you don't get the the necessarily take gym three times your senior year because you have to actually take some classes and get some of these credits back. And so I was like, OK, mm-hmm. just sign me up for whatever I have to. And. Yeah. So that next semester, he signs me up for a drama class because I needed to make up English credits ah, very badly. Look at that. Yeah. Mm. And so, but this is yeah. what he, cause I, when I saw that, I was like, I'm not taking a drama class. Like, I'm, he was like, listen, <laughs> he said, you don't have to do anything. He said, just show up every day and pass the class and you'll get your English credit. And I was like, deal. I didn't go to the best school in the world academically. It was it was literally like just show up and and you know, and so I remember that first semester I sat in the back of the class. I went almost every day. I I probably skipped quite a bit, but I went enough that I was going to pass the class. And on the last day of that semester, the teacher says, "Mr. Valdez, you haven't performed all semester." And I said, "I was told uh-huh. I didn't have to perform." And she goes, "No, in my class if you want to pass, you have to get on stage at least once." And I was like, then maybe I'm not going to graduate high school because I was not about to go up there. And so she goes, listen, mm. we're doing improvs today. We were on the stage, I remember, in the in the auditorium. And she had me on the wings and she says, listen, they're doing an improv. They're doing just a dinner scene. You walk in, be the waiter, interact, come off. She goes, and, and you pass the class. Like, just do that one thing. And I was like, okay. 
and my ears are ringing like all the other kids in the class are in the like first row of the audience and I'm very nervous I'm very self-conscious and all these things and I go out there and I think I black out like I don't fully remember what happened but I remember coming to in the audience like the kids in the front row are laughing and laughing and laughing and I realize they're not laughing at me they're laughing with me because of the way I'm interacting with people uh, and I'm being very funny. And I remember thinking, uh, huh. And so I keep going and I keep elaborating and doing all these things and they're just laughing and everybody's rolling. And I was like, what is this feeling? Like, what is this thing that's going on? Oh, and wow, Rudy. and huh. I walked off the stage and the, my drama teacher goes, what the hell was that? And I was like, I don't know. And she goes, you should maybe audition for the musical. Like two weeks later, there was a musical that they were just having auditions what? for. And so I auditioned and I got a part in the spring musical, like, you know, mm. a small part, but it kind of not only shifted the way I navigated school at that point, but it shifted the way people looked at me, most importantly, teachers, because all of a sudden it was like, wait, Rudy's doing drama and people would... And, and I became like the drama kid overnight, like overnight. I think that teacher went and told other teachers, like, he's got something. He's Something's going on because I got, you know, a part in that spring musical. But then in the fall, I got the lead in the Shakespeare show. Like this kid who, who was told, you're never going to graduate. You're failing all these English classes. You're not, all of a sudden I'm understanding and not only understanding, but teaching and helping other people with iambic pentameter. I'm, I just fall all in to theater and everybody's perspective of me changes. And so this counselor who told me I couldn't go to college, you know, I never took my ACTs or SATs. So I couldn't get into a four-year college, but I did this like senior year of high school where I was in the, in the, um, yeah, the fall play, the spring musical, I was doing community theater. I was doing all these things. And all of a sudden I get into this theater program at the local community college and because I couldn't get into anything else, and I just killed it in, in uh, there. And I was doing the studio shows. I was doing the 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 shows for my class, and then I was doing all the regional theater that I could do. And then I got into Michigan State strictly because I could act. I could do that. So this like little chance moment of and and I don't want to speak ill of that counselor. But it wasn't like he was like, I'm going to give him theater. He was literally just shoving me into a class to be like, yeah, you need to get yeah, this English credit. Right. You need to do this thing. And, you know, he wasn't like, I'm going to give him art and it's going to change his life. I think of art course. and storytelling found me. And it was like, yeah. here's a, here's a oh, thing. Man. And so that led to everything else that led to me not feeling like I was dumb anymore. It led to me understanding that maybe I didn't learn the way other people learned but I'm not dumb. And it gave me a different kind of confidence to navigate the world as somebody who wasn't just taking things in, but also putting things out into the world. Yeah. Gosh, Rudy, sometimes there are moments in our life, right, where the circumstances by which we find something that becomes our calling, our purpose, right, don't happen in the ways of one of generosity, one of like, I want to give you this opportunity, right? which I think is a really important story to tell that sometimes it's just being this combination of like luck, right place, right time. And that, you know, it found you and you were able to then your own agency really take hold of it. And then your, your teacher at the end of that class saying, well, you have to perform to pass this class. And you were at this inflection point. Yeah. I don't want to not pass this class because shoot, I've been here all freaking semester. Right. So it's like, I'm kind of putting words in your mouth, right? You were like, fuck it. Well, I've, well, if I got to perform, oh, well, it's just, just for this scene. Like, why not? Right. Yeah. Um, it was very close to me saying, I'm not going to do it. It was very close to me being like, I'm wow, not, I'm man. just not going to do it. Very close. How did your family react to you getting the acting, the artist, like purpose bug? It was interesting because I had done up until that point, I was really just sports. I was, you know, basketball, baseball, like I did all these things. And that was sort of what, and the sort of crazy thing that when I think about this time, like my parents at that time were going through a very, very, very nasty divorce. And it was a very rough time at home. 
And like one of the things that was also kind of this unknown savior of, of theater was that playing basketball after school was a couple of hours that I played on the, you know, in real or whatever, like, but theater rehearsal after school was four hours, you know, and there were people there every single day yeah. at the auditorium, whether I, w- I needed to be there or not. Like, you know, you don't have to go every day if you're not in every scene. And so, but it became a place that I just went every day after school. Mm-hmm. And it was this thing that was like my refuge in a lot of ways. And while, while my parents were going through this crazy divorce and like all this sort of drama was happening around my class or around my family, you know, um, it really, it really got bad the beginning of my senior year uh, to where my dad was like moving out and like we were doing all, it was just a really tumultuous time. And I remember my senior year being in that Shakespeare show and it was the first rehearsal that I was, I I played Benedict in Much Do About Nothing. And it was the first time I was rehearsing a big monologue or whatever. And I remember doing this monologue and, you know, looking out for my director in the audience as I was like looking for feedback. And in the very, very back of the theater was my dad, just like sitting in the very back row. Oh, wow. And I was like, what's he doing here? And, and I just sort of went on with rehearsal and he sat there the entire time, like didn't bother anyone, didn't talk to anyone. He was just sitting in the very, very back. You know, he, he was never a super emotional or, or like he wasn't going to get into feelings, but after rehearsal, he just came up and he said, I'm very proud of you. It's really cool that you're doing this. And then he just kind of left. And I was like, okay, well, they're seeing that I'm trying to do something. And that was another just push in this idea that there's some value in, 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 in agency in, in doing this thing that maybe other people from my neighborhood looked at me and were like, what the hell are you doing? You know, what is, what is going, you're doing theater in, but they were, they were, they were always just like, be happy, chase, chase happiness, chase, chase those things. And so that's how my family kind of reacted. They were unbelievably supportive of anything that I did as long as they felt like I was happy doing it. So that was always wonderful. Yeah, that resonates a ton with me in terms of like, in my own upbringing, how my family supported me. They just wanted me to be happy. Yes, they wanted me to make money. Yes, they wanted certain professional careers and being Filipino, being in healthcare was sort of like, (laughs) for many of (laughs) us were pushed towards, right? And I had to disappoint my mom by not applying to medical school and, you know, it was hard for her to reconcile. Like, why'd you waste college? I was like, I didn't waste college. And like, fast forward, you know, when I would talk to her about what I did, she's like, she didn't have to understand it. But I think she knew it was happy and having purpose. She's like, well, you're making money, you're paying bills, you seem like you love what you're doing. And so I'm proud of you. Like that, that was just enough. Right. And I think that always resonated with me now, fast forward to like, how I try to raise my girls is, you know, mm-hmm. to be proud of what they do, especially around effort and not outcome all the time, right? And I think that's still learning for me because my oldest daughter had a a volleyball game recently and, you know, it's kid volleyball. You you could just imagine what the game looks like, right? And so- Probably a lot like us playing volleyball on Jones Beach. Yeah, as adults, it wasn't much different, right? In terms of like serves hitting the net and serves going in and out and all that stuff. But it was funny because like ultra competitive Ron was like, I was like, come on, dude. I was like, Ron, you have to dial it back. This is the learning experience. This is about team. There's other things that the kids were learning on both teams that I think are beyond just like how well did they play. It almost didn't matter, right? You know, because showing up and being in that circumstance, I think is so much of like where you end up finding your passion. Like just being given the opportunity and seeing what you want to do with it. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's so much of our life right now is, Giving kids up, giving our kids opportunities, and just seeing what they do with it. Yeah, yeah. So I'm curious, Rudy. There was this transition. The acting bug hit you. The theater bug hit you. And yet, now fast forward, you've moved into filmmaking. So talk to us about that journey. Yeah. So that's a that's a whole other TED talk right there. So I, you know, I, <laughs> I came to New York. <laughs> I came to New York to be an actor and a writer, and really to work in comedy. That's what that's what I wanted to do. My dream was always to be on Saturday Night Live. That was that was the the ultimate goal for me, and so I start okay. working here. I moved to New York City. I start working, you know, in the sub basement of the Pottery Barn, 
And, you know, but, but I'm, I'm also trying to figure out how I'm going to navigate this world, how I'm going to, to not waste any time. And I always tell the story. It's like my, it's, it's been my secret to storytelling, uh, a little game that I invented for myself because I didn't want to waste mm. any moment. And so I used to live up in Washington yeah. Heights and I yeah. worked at the Pottery Barn in Soho. And so sometimes, you know, and I unloaded the trucks in the morning. And so I'd have to leave at like four in the morning and the trains don't run very often at that point. And so it would sometimes mm, be an hour, hour and a half. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, it would sometimes be an hour, hour and a half ride down there at four in the morning. And so I didn't want to sleep. And so I would carry these little notebooks with me everywhere I went. And I created this game in my head. And it was like, okay, here are the rules of the game. This little, it would be those like little moleskins. I would take one page and I would say, the first person that walks on the train, I'm going to write their story. And I'm going to write, I'm going to start at the top left of the notebook and I have to end at the bottom right. And there needs to be a beginning, middle, and an end. And the rule is I have to finish it before they get off the train. And so I don't know when they're going to get uh, off the train. I don't know what, you know, I don't know anything about them. And so I just started playing this game. And what I didn't uh, know is I was training myself, A, how to finish something, which is a big problem in writing, in, in creative pursuits. It's like everyone always has that idea of how to start something. The real tough part is finishing something. And I started to, every day, I would write, you know, five, six, seven stories a day, just based on like somebody walking in. And, and one of the other things about me is I don't like to do things more than once. I like to find other ways. So at first it was like, oh, you know, you can find out a lot about a person by their shoes or by the bag they're holding or by, but then that started to get very old for me because keep in mind, I did yeah. this, you know, four or five times a week to and from work for months and months and months. I did this hundreds of times. And so I started looking at people's mannerisms. I started looking at people's haircuts. I started looking and uh, all these different things started to provide me with different ways to start a story and start to tell something. And the other thing I started to notice was my, my last rule was always, you know, I had to finish before they left. So I had to start paying attention to people's mannerisms and how they carried themselves. If they started to shift in their seat, I would think they're getting ready to get off. So I have to finish their story. I have to finish whatever my thought is on them and have a legitimate beginning, middle and end. And so I started to be able to read people and read how their mood and read what they're doing. And so that became unbeknownst to me. It was just me trying to not be bored and fall asleep on the train. It became a real training ground for me on telling story. And so it was just like story, 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 story all day, every day, character, settings, backgrounds, future, like all of these things just started happening. And so I uh, start producing uh, another show. I, I had my first audition in New York City. It was actually, I had a, my first audition pretty soon after I moved to New York City and it was a Shakespeare show. And I auditioned and they were like, we would love to have you in this. And this was literally like, I'm just walking in off the street. I found it in like backstage East or something. And I walked okay. in and I did a monologue and they were like, yeah. But what I didn't know when I auditioned was that it was a touring show. And I was like, I just moved here. Like, I'm not going to then go and do this like little Shakespeare tour thing. And so I was like, maybe this isn't for me. And then I auditioned for another show a couple months later. I ended up getting that. So I got one of the leads in that and went on to go to the New York Fringe Festival. And so I'm like starting to work and I'm starting to do all these things all while still working at the Pottery Barn. And then by some crazy set of coincidences, I, well, there's, there's a lot in the story. So I also had this other idea of writing a show. I wanted to write my own little one man show. I was very influenced by John Leguizamo. He was one of those first people that wow. I looked at. And, and mm. I thought like, here's somebody who looks at like yes. me, who is taking their story who has agency, who is commanding their story, and all of those things. But also he has these audiences sitting in the palm of his hand through his voice, through his story. And I wanted to try that. Absolutely. And so I wrote this little one-man show called Coconut, a stand-up dramedy. And it's about, you know, growing up, people always said I was brown on the outside and white on the inside. And I always straddled that line of like not being... Mexican yeah. enough for the Mexicans in my neighborhood, not being white enough for the white people in my school. Like I always straddled that line. I went back home to perform it and I only intended on performing it two nights. One night was sort of a dress. The second night was for my family because it was about my family. 
And on the second night, some random guy came up to me and he goes, hey, I'm going to give you my card. Would you want to come and perform this show for me at a conference in San Diego? Uh, we'll pay you 1200 bucks. And I was like, hell yeah. I was like, hell yeah, I'll go perform. And so I didn't ask what it was. I didn't ask what anything was. They flew me out there and they were like, what do you need? I was like, all I need is a stool and a stage and I'll perform. And so they just set this up and I went out and performed and there was tons of people there and I did the performance. And at the end, I was like, it was weird because they just brought up the house lights and the guy who had invited me out was sitting sort of towards the front of the stage and he goes, stay right there, stay there. And I go, okay. And then this line started to form in front of me and he gave me this little like bag and he was like, just hold this. And I held the bag and people started coming up and they said, we'd love to have you. And they started putting cards in the bag. We'd love to have you. We would love to have you. We would love to. And I was like, what the hell is going on? So what, what? I didn't know. <laughs> yeah. So what I didn't know was it was Surreal. a conference for uh, colleges around the country who wanted to bring sort of motivational speakers and shows and things. And uh... so this all leads up to something. So I was like, I don't know what any of that means or whatever. I started teaching at a private school. Like this is all sort of mashed together. And then I'm yeah, performing, yes. I'm producing a comedy show. I'm writing comedy. I'm doing comedy. I'm doing all of these things, all of this stuff uh, for a few years. Then I decide, then something happens in my family. And uh, my sister is, is I, I go back to Michigan and my sister is sent away on a 15 year um, federal prison sentence for a first time nonviolent offense, six years after Jesus. the offense occurs, she had a four a four year old, a two year old, and a five week old. And I remember um, them them taking her out of the um, courthouse, and I stood up. I was, uh, and I remember thinking to myself, like somebody has to do something. Somebody has to say something. Like this isn't right. And I quickly realized as I glanced around that room at the lawyers, at the judge, at I was like, nobody here is going to say anything. Nobody here is going to fight for her. And I said, I have to figure out how to fight for her. And I didn't know what that meant. I didn't know what any of that meant. But the next day, I go to her house. We didn't know where she was. They'd taken her. We didn't know where she was for a few weeks. I go to her house. Her kids are there. And she used to videotape a lot of stuff with her kids. And I just instinctively pick up a camera. And I start filming with the girls simply because I wanted. Oh gosh, this is where the footage comes from, Rudy. Okay. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so yeah. I simply I'm... wanted to. Oh wow, man! Be um... able to capture moments of the kids' lives, so that one day she could watch them. This had didn't have anything to do with anything, and I'm living in New York at the time. This is in Michigan, and I'm flying back every time I have a spare dime. I'm flying back and trying to spend some time with the kids and. And I flew back. I remember her oldest daughter, Autumn, was having her first dance recital and something that I know Cindy wanted to be at so badly. I remember the flight back to New York was something like $380, the flight back to Detroit from New York. And I had like $412 in my bank account. But I was like, all right, I'm going to go. I'm going to go and do it. And so I go back and I'm filming as her daughter is getting ready. And unbeknownst to me, completely organically, Cindy calls while I'm filming. And I was like, do I, do I stop recording? Is this something she's going to want to see? And Cindy says something to her older daughter that changed my entire life and my trajectory. She says, do you know what mommy's going to do while you go to dance? I'm going to lay down in my bed. I'm going to close my eyes and I'm going to think about you. And I'm filming this. And in the, my head, I go, I have to figure out how to tell this story. And so that's the wow. moment I become a filmmaker. I go back that next Andy. Monday. Yeah, oh. I go back that next Monday. I tell my principal, I'm not coming back next year. I stopped acting. I had a manager that was managing me. I was like, I don't want to audition anymore. I don't want to do anything. I'm going to figure out how to become a filmmaker. And the only thing that saved me at that moment were those cards that were put in that bag because I was able to pull those cards out of that bag and say, Hey, I'll come and perform for you um, for X amount of days or whatever. And so I started to set those shows up 
And that was how I paid my rent. That was how I lived because what I dedicated my life to at that point was I'm going to get on every film set, on every shoot that anyone will allow me. It was my version of being able to be that unpaid intern for a while, which people Mm. who come from where I come from don't always get that opportunity because we don't have a a trust fund. We don't have a bank account that that we can just sit there and like experience and figure that out. I went and performed a couple times a a month to be able to do that. And um, I started to learn because I didn't know the first thing about filmmaking. And so I'm starting as an unpaid intern uh, over here while on this side, I'm starting a film. I'm a, the director, the producer, the sound person, the everything on this film, and nobody really knew about it. And so I started to build a career. I went from intern to PA pretty quickly, from PA to a sound mixer, from a sound mixer to additional photography, from additional photography to a cinematographer. And I started to build a career. And after about three years of building, starting Absolutely. to build this career, um, and this is the one of the things that I love to tell, especially people who who want to be filmmakers and want to have that that yes. opportunity. About three years into doing this, I'm secretly filming this other film that nobody really knows about about my family, and I show it. I, I, I'm fortunate enough to have access to some people that I really respect, who are very well respected in the film community, and I show them this little. 15 minute thing that I'd edit together. And I was very proud. And I was like, I, I think I'm onto something. And I show this one person and they watch about three minutes and they go, they shut their laptop and they go, who cares? And I go, what? And they go, wow. They go, who, who cares? That film has already been made. I've already made that film. Like who cares? And it, in the moment, completely devastated me because I changed everything in my life to try and make that film. Everything, everything I'd worked for, I changed. And I sat on that who cares for probably two weeks, two or three weeks. And finally I said to myself, who cares? Who cares? And it's written on my laptop right now. I write it on everything that I work on. Who cares? Because what I needed to understand is who does care? Why do I need somebody to, to care about my family? Why do I need somebody to care about this story? I understand why I love my family. I understand why I care about this. How can I tell the story in a way that other people will care? And that became my goal. And so I continued to work. I continued to build. I continued to do all these things. And for nine and a half years, I made that film all by myself. And then when it was done, I had somebody come in and I was able to get financing to finish it. And by some miracle, we got into Sundance. We won the audience award at Sundance and, you know, it started my career. So it was a long, long journey to become a filmmaker. Was there anything in terms of that story that you changed based on any of the feedback you got from that well-respected person? Was it more that the who cares is like, I got to continue on with my passion and love of what I understand is best for my family. And I just got to keep it moving. Or was there something in between? So, so what ended up happening with that is just this evolution of how I started to tell that story and where I placed my camera within that story. And what I quickly realized was that the things that I was learning, because I didn't go to film school, I was learning on sets. I was learning from other people. And the thing that I quickly learned was what makes my film different than how I'm watching other people make their film and and other films that I'm watching is I am the brother. I am the uncle. I am the son. And I need to place myself and my lens within that. This cannot be a voyeuristic telling of this story. This cannot be a, uh, a from the outside looking in. This has to be from the inside. And so I quickly figured out what my formula was for filming. And, mm. and I also needed to understand that this film, while it was about my family, was or while my family was in it, it wasn't about my family. It was about all of the other families who were going through what we were going through. And I needed them to be emblematic of that larger story. And so I started to understand storytelling and how to bring people in 
to a story like that and not feel again, woe is me, poor me, all those things, but hope, love, agency, and what that can do if you place that into a story like this. Mm. Rudy, I remember when you came out with the sentence, and I'm going to try, oh God, because I cry all the time over things. Uh, when Shanita and I watched the sentence, I remember looking at her going, oh my God, I did not know this about Rudy's life. Yeah. And there was something beyond like the the personal, something for like me emotionally that transcended what a brother's love did to make sure he, you know, was able to do justice for his sister. That was just, yeah. um, it's powerful. It's powerful. Yeah. And it was, it was important to, again, break it down to its bare, bare essentials of, yeah, it was love. It was in some ways the bare minimum I could do, but I wanted to be emblematic of like what you can do when you believe in something, what, what can happen yeah. if you lead with love and you, and you try to do it the right way. You know, I didn't go into that film trying to throw anybody under the bus or blame anyone or say, like, this criminal justice system has singled us out and done this thing. I wanted to shine a light on a real problem within the system and say, this is how we are going to navigate it. This is how we're going to do this. And hopefully you see yourself in it. Hopefully you see answers to your uh, your position in this. Whether you're directly dealing with this or not, it is something that is affecting every single member, every single person in this country. Because there are people within your community who are dealing with the exact same thing. And I think that I attempt to put stuff out into the world that leads with empathy, leads with humanity, so that we can, at the very least, start to look at problems and people and situations from a different perspective. Yeah. And I imagine going back to that exercise you had on those train rides back and forth through Pottery Barn, that those observational skills that you developed, I'm sure had a lot to do with your ability to filmmak. So how did that influence the lens and way that Rudy Valdez saw putting out this story, this documentary about the sentence. Yeah. So that's another thing that I love to talk about because I think that the thing that really, again, there's these moments of luck. There are these moments, uh, this sort of forks in the road where something comes up and you attempt it and, or you try to attempt it and you try to do these things I had a theater background. I had those story exercises I was doing. I had a comedy background. I had a huge improv background. I had all of these things. And yeah. what those things all continued to teach me, starting from my first trips to LA, trying to audition and do those things, is failure, 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 failure. And what my relationship was fa- with failure was going to do. And improv is that same way. Mm. You take risks, you do things. You don't always win, <laughs> but you keep going. Every scene. Yeah. Every scene. Absolutely. Yeah. And it's like, yeah. you have to understand that sometimes the failure isn't yours. Sometimes it's, I don't even like to think of things as a failure. You know, I think about the sentence, for example, when it came out, it, you know, I had no idea that when it came out, it was going to be at the absolute zeitgeist of that political topic being such a, a hot issue in the country. Like, it could have come out a year before and nobody would have ever heard of it. It could have come out a year later and maybe nobody ever heard of it. That doesn't mean it's not a good film. That just means it yeah. didn't catch that wave, you know? And so luck, luck, but putting your stuff out there yeah. as, as, as best you can. And you're not always going to hit the zeitgeist, but if you continue to put out good work for the right reason, you're going to slowly build something without even knowing it. Yeah. Have you watched Sly Stallone's recent documentary on Netflix? This makes me think of what he talked about in that documentary. I don't know if you have the chance to watch it. I haven't seen it yet. Um, It's really fascinating because it's almost this, I mean, similar stories, I would say, of like when he was in Hollywood, right, and trying to make it, he got told, you are a gangster. You have to play a fighter. You're not worthy of acting. Look at the way that you look. Mm -hmm. And he caught his first break with the Lords of Flatbush. Mm-hmm. right? Small bit part, knocked it out the park, but realized even before that he had filmed something with his longtime producer friend, which was like this, I, I'm, I'm forgetting all the details, but it felt like a Western because mm-hmm. he had a love of horses. I had no idea. Like he did polo. I was like, 
what? <laughs> like, yeah, I was like, wait, Slice Malone used to do polo, but there was a relationship with his father there that was really deep around that love of polo that was talked about in the documentary. But he realized I had to write something. I needed to, he wanted to act, but I needed to like put myself in the story because no one would effing hire me. Right. Thus the creation of Rocky. Which similar to like he didn't know what Rocky was gonna do, and in fact, his the first, um, uh, like when it was out, you know, critics were seeing it. Like people were like, eh, he was like, oh my god, what the hell? And then it just boom, it blew up. But yeah. then it's all the like waves of the zeitgeist. He put out stuff that he thought came from his heart, but people didn't like. And it was like the two identities that people really loved in his world were Rocky and Rambo. It's fascinating right. stuff. Right. It's just like, wow, that's just crazy stuff. But, um, well, talk to me, Rudy, about what you're up to today. What is Rudy doing today in his filmmaking documentary? Well, you know, the, the interesting thing about after the sentence came out, yeah. uh, I was, again, very fortunate. It did really well. Uh, but all anybody wanted from me after that was, you know, the sentence to Electric Boogaloo. Like, they just wanted me to keep doing <sighs> crime yeah. and woe is me and, like, criminal justice and and all these things and I so I didn't work for like a year mainly because I you know mm. I play the long game and everything as you can see like I'm oh like I I play the long game yeah uh, and um good for I you thought, yeah. I thought if I take another criminal justice film immediately and then I take another one all of a sudden that's all I am and I yes. know that that's not all that I am I am a storyteller through and through I'm very proud to be a brown you know, Latino storyteller, Chicano storyteller, mm. but I will never let that limit the stories that I can tell, you know, because I can tell more than that. And so my first big thing post the sentence, I think was, uh, we are the Brooklyn saints for, uh, you know, a four part series for Netflix. Incredible documentary, by the way, incredible documentary. Thank you. Way. Yeah. And, and, and it was so yeah, different. It was so, you know, such a different yeah. approach and so I've continued to try to diversify. I've done 30 for 30s. I've done yeah. films on theater. one of Maya Moore, right? That was yours, yeah. right? Of, of a couple. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I did the Maya Moore film. I've done, you know, and, and since 2018, I've made like 17 films. I've, you know, I've made a lot of stuff. And most recently I had the Carlos Santana documentary come out that I, you know, shot and directed. I have Ooh. a six part series. Fire. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I'm very fortunate to have that. I have a six part series for Disney that's coming out in the new year that I directed every episode and shot it. I have two other Ooh. things that I can't talk about yet that are coming out next year. Um, <laughs> I just started okay. another, another documentary literally last week was our first like official kickoff that I can't talk about yet, but it's, it's one of those projects mm -hmm. that, and I, and I only mention it because of the way that I got it. It's a, sort of the same way that I was able to get the Maya Moore film and get the Santana film. You know, when you're, working with people especially people who have their own platform or whatever but i yes. think of everyone the same when i'm telling stories i and this is again the long game and this is why uh you even if you're not hitting the zeitgeist you put out work for the right reason when i'm making yes. a story and when i'm starting with somebody and i'm trying to gain that trust the thing that i always say to them is look at any project that i have directed anyone I don't have to say, don't, maybe don't look at this, maybe don't look at that. Look at anything that I've directed, and immediately you will know where my heart is. You will know why I'm here, and you will know what I'm trying to mm. put out into the world. That's the mm. long game. Yeah. That is the long game in this. Yeah. Because immediately, you know, when I was doing the Saints, there was one person who did not want to be a part. He was one of the coaches on one of the teams. He was like, I respect uh, who you are, I respect what you're doing, but I don't really want to be a part of this. And I was like, that's cool. Like, you don't have to. He was like, you can film me on the sidelines or whatever, but I'm not going to do any interviews. No. And I was like, great. I respect that. Yes. Five months later, he comes <laughs> to me and he says, you know what? I Googled you. And I said, oh, okay. He said, and I watched your film. He said, I watched your film, The Sentence. And I go, oh, thank you for watching. And he goes, I see who you are now. And I see how you're interacting with these kids. He says, you can film with me if you want. He became so our main dope. character of that series. Oh, that, that's great. What a story, man. What I've always appreciated about you 
And first of all, I want to just give immense gratitude because I just know how busy you are. And so I was like, when I've been thinking through my podcast guests, kind of similar to like how you think about stories, I'm like, who are people whose values that I align with, whose stories that I think are just so amazing that I just want the opportunity to have a conversation and just record it, right? And there's something about like having you on here and hearing your story that makes me think of what I'm doing on this podcast is there's a long game involved here. Like if people are like, yo, are you going to monetize this? I'm like, I mean, I would like to, but that's not why I'm doing it. Mm-hmm. You know where I get the joy from? Being the muse to be able to be curious and learn about people's stories and values. Like I'm so insatiably curious about it. It drives, you know, when you talked about understanding when you want to be a filmmaker, I think I, I realized I wanted to be a storyteller by, by similarly by accident. It was just a confluence of life things. The more that I wrote on social media, the more that I became this thought leader because I just wanted to share my observations in the world. It started rondering as a hashtag as a news resolution five years ago. It <laughs> became this thing like, Ron, I really love what you have to say. When you post ronderings, I look forward to it. I'm like, word? Shit. <laughs> like I didn't, you don't know the effect you have on people. So what started to happen is I've Googled you. I've looked you up. I heard about you from someone. Because when you keep doing the work, you're leading from this place of love and values and passion and empathy. I'd like to believe that's what we learned from our parents. For me, this is like very generational. This is deeply cultural and ancestral. That leads us to the places where we should be. And it's a matter of trusting in the universe or God, whatever you believe in, that we're going to be in the right place at the right. That's how I define luck. Like luck is just doing what you're passionate about. And then being observational enough to see where the opportunities are always right in front of our face. Yeah, yeah. And I also believe, you know, I, maybe I shouldn't say this on a podcast because it might uh, <laughs> it might be a bit too much. But, you know, when I, I get okay. random emails and I get people reach out to me who, you know, want to be filmmakers a lot. And when those emails and or, or meetings happen and, and, they, and they actually get to me and every single time, you know, it just happened two days ago, people are like, wow, I can't believe how much time you just spent with me answering every question that I have. And I tell them, well, what good is anything that I've experienced or any knowledge that I have or any advice that I could give? What good is it if I don't share it? It holds no value. I can't, it doesn't mean anything to me if I hold it and keep it to myself and don't try to give somebody else that opportunity or that inspiration to go off and do it on their own. I'm cheapening my experience i'm lessening my experience by keeping it to myself i i I crave those one-on-one experiences where somebody's like what does this mean or how can what is your advice on this like i can i I tell them i can't tell you what to do or how to do it but i can tell you how i did it and if that helps you then then i want to help you but um what good is is this life and these experiences if we if we're not open to sharing them and allowing other people to learn yeah. Amen to that. You share very similar generosity that I, you're the Chris Memoras and many others that we know who just take that time and that it's the titles and the things that we've done don't define our deeper humanity and generosity. It right. just doesn't, right? I, yeah. For me, like the best thing that I do in life is the way that I've made people feel based on the Maya Angelou quote, right? There's something truly universal that no matter what station of where we are in life, giving and being generous is just a way of being because that's what makes the world go around. If we do that, like, frankly, I think that's how we recapture humanity. Because right now, clearly with everything going on in the world, there's a lot of things that say that we are not aligned and we're not actually believing that we are human in the way that we've always been. How do we recapture that? Yeah. Right. So Rudy, we're towards the end of this conversation. So to bookend this what is your rondering? What's the lesson or value you want to share with the audience? Wow. Um, yeah. That's a, that's a, there's so many lessons, but I think. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I'll have you back as a guest. We can do a whole thing on lessons and values. Yeah. yeah. Part two. <laughs> I mean, I think something that I wish that I hadn't wanted to believe earlier in my life is that I have value, that my voice matters, that that 
my story matters. And I hope that other people are starting to learn that and hear that and see that, you know, as we're able to, I think representation matters in that sense. You know, the same way John Leguizamo is a big reason why I came to New York. It was simply because I was able to see someone who was doing it. And it's not like I was like, oh, I can go and do that. But I knew it was possible. And so I hope that the lesson is that you can believe in yourself that you, your voice matters and that when you're doing it, someone else is also watching you and, and that breeds more. And that's what we need to do. We need to continue to believe in ourselves because then other people will believe in themselves and keep pushing that ball forward, that, that's that rock up the hill because, you know, if it's just one person pushing that we're never going to get it up there. But as we start to have more people push our backs, we can, we can push that up that hill and, and, see the possibilities and not look at, at these stories of Americana and not see ourselves in them. Beautiful, Rudy. Thank you for sharing that rondering with us. So before we end off, what would you like to promote that's going on in your world that you can't promote? <laughs> uh, I know you did a little bit of that earlier, but like, feel free to elevate these things for us and where we can find these things. Yeah. I mean, I think the Carlos Santana film just had a, you know, for a documentary, it was, you know, I felt very, uh, fortunate it had a global release in theaters. Um, I think it might still be in a couple theaters now, but it's going to be uh, on a streamer very soon. I can't announce the streamer yet because they're still going through all of that stuff. Yeah. I think it's going to be on airplane <laughs> yes. soon. And I have, you know, uh, a six part series on Disney coming out early next year. And I have two other films coming out in the next year that I can't talk about yet. And, uh, yeah. Yeah. you know, I, I just think I like to promote other people and other things. Watch watch people's stuff, enjoy the people's stuff and create stuff. Like I want you to promote yourself, you know, listen to more renderings. Yeah. Amen to that. That's what I'm trying to get out in the world. Um, is that we share each other's stories, uplift each other. Similarly, what you said, where you're rendering that we keep pushing each other up the hill. We won't slide down. Yeah. It'll be impossible. Yeah. Um, is there a website, Rudy, where people can find, like, what's the way that people can like be tapped into the world of Rudy Valdez. Yeah, I mean there is. I'm I'm terrible at social media. I don't I don't post a lot on social media, but uh, most of my my links to my work or, or being able to see what I work on is at RudyValdez.com. Um, I Beautiful. did. I have yeah. started a new production company called Bluff Road Films um, that I just wow, I partnered man. with Imagine Entertainment. Ron Howard and Brian Grazer's company partnered with me on my new production Woo! company. So we're you know, we're pushing forward to not only, you know, and that, that all stems from me wanting to direct more and wanting to do more, but understanding that while I can tell a lot of stories, I shouldn't tell every story. And, and it, it, it's about believing in other young directors and filmmakers to try and give them the opportunity to, to put their, 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 their mark out on the world. So I'll be partnering with other young directors and, and helping to empower yeah. them. That resonates with me. I started a publishing group because I, I wrote a book earlier in June and kind of similar to yours. I don't want it to just be my story. I think my story and your story is really interesting, but how do we put other people's stories out there? Thus, this podcast, thus wanting to publish first-time authors of color. is just something that matters so much because once again, if we're all pushing each other up the hill, these stories, the, the feeling I want is by the time that, that I pass, is the legacy that these stories become nor- like, this is not something like, oh my God, this is the first time it's told. Like, no, there's just variations of all these beautiful stories in the United Colors of Benetton ad that I see as our lives. Where there's a yep. little bit of everybody and all kinds of identities, but they're enduring values that tie us all together. Well, Rudy, thank you so much for being a guest on the Rounderings podcast. Um, this has been a real treat, man. What I always find with all of these episodes is I think I know somebody but I never do. I always learn a lot more. So thank you for the gift of learning more about you, your genius, and most importantly, your values. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Ronderings fam, in the words of Coach Prime, we keep coming. It's more fire like this with folks who look like Rudy and I. So check us out on the podcast waves. Peace. universe that Rudy Valdez episode had me in my emotions 
Full story, when I first watched The Sentence on HBO with my missus, uh, I was emotional watching it, not only because of the emotion of the story of Rudy documenting his sister's social criminal justice journey, but also just knowing Rudy and how much love and energy he put into it. And also finding out that that's the reason he got into filmmaking. So thank you, Rudy, for sharing your story and your genius with us today. Y'all know we keep coming more amazing guests and stories like Rudy Valdez. I'm another mic. Nice and hot. Peace.